Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 12th, 2021, and it's a lovely day, as always, in San Francisco from my home just above the Haight-Ashbury. Uh, one of the great centers of psychedelic culture and the history of rock and roll. We've had quite a musical week this week. Uh, yesterday, I had the distinguished rock uh, journalist, uh, Bob Spitz, on the, the show. He has a, uh, a new book out um, on Led Zeppelin. Uh, and the headline for the show this week was The Notorious History of Led Zeppelin. I don't sure the Zeppelin are distinguished for the lyrics of their songs. Their best-known song, Stairway to Heaven, uh, is an endless song, and I don't remember any of the lyrics. I think it's pretty awful. Um, and it goes on for about eight or nine minutes. It might represent the end of the lyric, um, post-lyrical song. Today, uh, we're talking music and song, but in uh, a much more poetic sense. Uh, one can say many things about Led Zeppelin, but I don't think they were very poetic. Today, we're going to talk poetry and song with um, two very interesting uh, authors. Uh, Mike Matteson and Ernest Suarez are the co-authors of, of a really interesting new book. I've been reading it all morning, Poetic Songverse, Blues-Based Popular Music and Poetry. Um Let's start with uh, Ernest, who, as I joked at the beginning, is anything but Ernest. He, he's an iconic uh, academic and, and, and music scholar. Uh, Ernest, uh, I have to ask you the Led Zeppelin question. They managed to infiltrate your book, I noted, uh, but, but they're not really examples of, uh, of, of uh, poetic song verse. Is that fair? We mentioned Led Zeppelin in the context in that they're a band that heavily draws on the blues. But I'd agree with you. Uh, lyrically, uh, Led Zeppelin is, is not uh, the type of uh, band that we focus on. Good. Well, that's the last mention we're going to have of Led Zeppelin today. I've had enough <laughs> of them. I talked about them yesterday. The subtitle, Ernest, of the book is Blues-Based Popular Music and Poetry. The blues, what are they? I mean, we hear that word all the time. I looked it up on Wikipedia. I was none the wiser. Uh, Ernest, tell me what you mean and what you understand the blues to be. Well, the, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the blues uh, means lots of things to lots of people. It can mean anything from Robert Johnson in the 1920s and 30s uh, to uh, bands like uh, uh, Mike's band, the Tedeschi Trucks band playing uh, today. But what the blues are is a form of music that develops early in the 20th century and that is built around the sound of the human voice rather than on Western harmonics. Let me bring Mike in. Um, Mike, uh, you are um, uh, not just a writer, but also a musician. Maybe you can have a crack at the blues too. What do you mean by it? Not just as a writer and scholar, but as a musician yourself. 
Uh, well, yeah, our, our band does sing the blues. I consider us a blues band, and so we've had a lot of time to think about it. But um, part of what we're trying to do in the book is trace how the blues became embedded in American popular music and then uh, linked up with, with poetry and, and rock and roll and became this new genre that we're describing as poetic song verse. But what we say in the book, I think, uh, is a good way to begin with the blues. There's kind of four main elements, um, an insistent rhythm, uh, one that uh, because it is formal it, it is insistent and it keeps coming the same way it's inviting uh in that in the sense of everybody can participate in it um the blues form which we kind of loosely describe as an a a b form where the statement is made uh it's brought up to the fourth it's stated again and then the b part uh is kind of a response to that uh so it's three o'clock in the morning i can't close my eyes it's three o'clock in the morning i can't close my eyes I'm wild about your baby and I can't be satisfied. Um, and we talk about how that too is, has the same element of, of invitation in it. When you, when you say something once and people know you're going to say it again, this tension is built up waiting for the resolution of it. Uh, the third part is the blue notes, which again really um, are come from the human voice and they can be uh, recreated on instruments by bending a string up. Uh, for example, on a guitar or overblowing or something on a horn, but the blue notes fall between notes on the Western scale. They're technically half or quarter tones, um, and they emulate the human voice. Uh, they, they bring people in because there's a humanity there. And the fourth thing, which is often uh, controversial, uh, but we'll just call it authenticity of feeling. And what the blues requires, uh, or what the blues audience requires of the performer is uh, a sense that you are not lying, that you are telling the truth. And the, the great thing about the blues is you can say anything in that sacred space. You can talk about how overjoyed you are. You can talk about how miserable you are. You can talk about murdering your spouse. You can say anything you want as long as you mean it. Um, and so that's kind of a, a recap of, of how what we consider the blues elements to be. Ernest, um... The blues, of course, came out of a specific socioeconomic, socio-political world, uh, the African-American world um, of the South. We had, uh, we've done so many shows on racism, the legacy of slavery. Recently, we had a wonderfully poetic book. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. W. Ralph Eubanks's uh, book about the literature of Mississippi. Uh, um, Ernest, perhaps you might say something about the the politics of the blues, because it all came out of one of the most profound injustices uh, in human history, certainly in American history. Well, the, it's it's why so many of the songs had to be uh, coded, just like uh, different uh, slave songs songs of the enslaved from the 19th century often had to be coded because for instance we speak about uh, a song by uh, skip james and if skip james you know the song is crow jane and crow jane is really jane uh, uh jane crow uh segregation and he sings it as if it's about a woman that he is going to uh, murder but what he's speaking about is eliminating 
Jim Crow. So the blues, as Mike is saying, can contain any topic, but sometimes, given the political situation, um, the the songwriters had to uh, mask what they were saying. And masking, this type of masking is something that then 60 songwriters uh, picked up on and did much the same thing. Uh, Mike, um, this weekend uh, I'm going to an exhibit at the San Francisco Muse uh, Jewish Museum, uh, an exhibit, a kind of interactive experiential exhibit about Leonard Cohen. Cohen, of course, comes up quite frequently in, in your book. You have a wonderful section uh, writing about his song, Suzanne. Uh, Cohen was also, uh, I guess, a Jewish mystic or certainly had a, a strong interest in his own Jewish identity. How central, and we, we talked about how, uh, uh, Ernest talked about how uh, the blues, the African-American experience of slavery manifested the blues through a kind of religion. How central in your mind is religion to uh, poetic song verse. Uh, there's, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Bob Dylan later, but of course he has his own rather complicated relationship with organized religion. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I think specifically with Cohen, he's one of the few musicians that we talk about who began in poetry. Um, I, I can't even really think of another one off the top of my head. And so uh, he's obviously bringing a poetic seriousness to his lyrics and, and his songwriting. And, and I think uh, in, in terms of religion, I think that would be intertwined with uh, any, any poet's search or journey uh, when, they're, when they're trying to have those conversations with themselves that, that yield uh, these lasting uh, pieces of, of work that, that we like to call poetry. Uh, but I don't. I don't think religion necessarily is uh, is a, a central part of poetic song verse. We do talk about in the book a little bit how the blues developed kind of parallel to um, African American gospel music, and that gospel music really took the gospel highway, as it were, and uh, blues music obviously didn't. But the, but both musics had a similar goal, which was emotional expiation and uh, and communal renewal, basically. It's just that in the blues, you could talk about everything. And in gospel, you had to be heading towards uh, a, a higher goal, I guess would be a nice way to say it. And it's, there are so many wonderful musicians and songs in the book. We're not going to be able to deal with all of them. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Chuck Berry. Um, he is part of the subject of, of one of your early chapters. I never really thought of Chuck Berry as a poet, but you make a very convincing case of him as being central in this tradition. What is it about Chuck Berry that, that made him such an important figure in the history of poetic song verse and in your book? Well, in the book, we concentrate uh, on Berry's influence on Dylan, uh, uh, for instance. Um, Berry is uh, someone who's lyrically Dylan calls the Shakespeare of rock and roll. And if we consider songs like Brown Eyed Handsome Man, I had just been speaking about the way different songs are coded. Uh, if we think about Brown Eyed Handsome Man, if you drop 
the word I'd from each of the instances that he brings it up in the song. What the song becomes about is uh, white women having relations with uh, men of color. And I think it was that type of cleverness, that type of coding, that type of ability to get into seemingly straightforward language with a lot of energy, these different types of social messages that made Barry stand apart from most of the other songwriters of his era. I mean, in a sense, I guess what you're saying is that Barry himself brilliantly coded himself. He was, or he, he sort of transformed himself into a sophisticated kind of poetry, which I guess the great artists always do. And he, and he invented a persona. I think that's key here. When Chuck Berry is singing all these songs from the perspective of a teenager, he's 30 years old, uh, married, a full adult. But what he does is create a voice, creates a persona that he can speak through. And this is something that Dylan is going to do multiple times in his career, that Jim Morrison is going to do. Um, that Mick Jagger is going to do time and again. They invent a self that allows them uh, to speak in a different manner. It's a kind of tongue. L let's go back to Mike. Mike, we've mentioned the D word. Let's deal with him straight on, Bob Dylan. He's the heart of the book. Um, you, you talk a lot about his, um, his Nobel Prize if uh, literature or poetry. Um, from your point of view as a musician, is there something about Dylan that's otherworldly, astonishing? It seems like the man continually, even now, continually invents and reinvents himself. Uh, does he make you feel small as a musician, is there something embarrassing about him for, the, for, for mere mortal musicians like yourself? And you're a very talented musician. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, think, I think musicians are, are impressed with Dylan as a songwriter. Um, I, I think if you really spend a lot of time listening to him, you, you'll be impressed by his musicianship as well. Well, I, I'm um, sorry, and let me rephrase the question. I, I, I asked it wrong. I'm, I'm less interested in his musicianship and more as as an artist, shall we say, as yeah. a poet, as a songwriter, singer-songwriter. Yeah. I mean, he really is kind of the lodestar of, of, of uh, what, what has come to be music post-1960. Um, and, and, and I think the important thing to remember about him, uh, and, and we were coming at this as when Ernest and I began our discussion about eight years ago, talking about this class that Ernest had been teaching poetry and rock. And there's all this scholarship on poetry and music, poetry and blues, poetry and jazz, but not a lot on poetry and rock. And, and Ernest and I would talk about how, you know, uh, every once in a while in a poetry anthology, they'll, they'll throw in a couple lyrics by Leonard Cohen or Bob Dylan kind of at the end and say like, eh, this is kind of poetry too. Um, and, and Ernest hit upon this and, and, it, and it wasn't very gratifying reading those lyrics uh, in an anthology amongst other poets, it, it didn't really stick. It wasn't convincing. And Ernest hit upon this idea that what we're really talking about is this convergence of music and lyrics, these lyrics that needed uh, the sonics, that needed the performance, that needed the production to take off, and it became something bigger than just uh, a piece of popular music. They, they became something that 
was poetic but wasn't quite poetry. And he had this idea, Ernest, that we were talking about something totally new, a different genre of poetic song verse. But for practice, and by the way, we are we fully admit this is something we just made up. It's a way well, to that's have, good. I mean, that's in that's in the Dylan tradition. I mean, if you don't make yes. it up, it's not real, right? <laughs> that's true. But but I'll, but really, just trying to come up with a vocabulary to talk about something that 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 didn't seem fully realized yet. It, it, it was in people's minds, but we didn't have the words to, to really have the conversation. But I think with Dylan, to answer your question, um, the, the main thing that he brings is, is a poetic intention. He's being consciously poetic, um, whereas, and then people who succeeded him would, 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 would take up that flag. But before that, um, nobody was consciously injecting a poetic seriousness, a, a, a wanting lyrics to be, and, and the music that they're conjoined with to be considered like poetry. And it was a gutsy thing to do. And uh, he, he was kind of appeared at the right moment for that to happen. And Ernest can speak to that probably better than I can. But, but what we talk about a lot in this is what is the, what is the songwriter trying to do? Is he trying to bring in elements of poetry where, um, this, this is a considered piece. It's using uh, different elements of language. It's using rich language. It's using metaphor. It's using narrative um, images. Uh, trying to make a piece of art that people have to return to time and time again to peel off more layers of meaning, like poetry. Yeah, let's, um, let's go back to Ernest, who uh, is the, the Bob Dylan of the academic world. Uh, Ernest, um, I, because of the book, I, I did some browsing around this morning, uh, Bob Dylan's uh, Nobel Prize winning speech um, and his award in 20, uh, I think it was in 2017. Uh, the, um, uh, the Nobel people said he got the prize for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. And he gave a, I thought a wonderful speech, a very Dylan-esque speech in which he didn't reveal very much of himself, one or two glimpses. It was quite a controversial award, though. Why do you think it annoyed so many people that Bob Dylan was given the Nobel Prize for Literature as a poet? Well, part of it, no doubt, is that uh, uh, Dylan, like other rock stars, have already gotten lots of attention, uh, not to even mention lots of money and so on. So perhaps some writers thought, okay, they're taking something uh, away from us. The other thing though, I think that's even more relevant is that people didn't know how to conceive fully of what Dylan and not just Dylan, you know, he didn't spring out of nowhere and there were certainly others with uh, high achievement in what we call poetic uh, song verse, but they didn't know how to discuss it. They didn't know what exactly this was. And we see that in the statements, both by, by the um, people's responses in general and by the Nobel committee in itself. They don't know exactly how to pin it down. Is it literature? Uh, or is it music? And what we say is that it's a specific uh, subgenre of music, of song, 
that's also a form of literature. It's what we call poetic song verse. Uh, one thing I'd like to add, Mike gives me a little too much credit. The concept of poetic song verse, I would never have come to, we would never have come to without uh, uh, thinking about it all together. Well, maybe one of you wanted, let, let, let's, let's go all academic and have a look at a little bit of the text. My favorite Bob Dylan song is Tangled Up in Blue and my favorite bit of the Tangled Up in Blue song of the, is the first four lines uh, when he sings, early one morning the sun was shining, I was laying in bed wondering if she'd changed it all if her hair still was red do, do one of you want to have a shot at that of i mean maybe you don't think it's very good or maybe it's not very poetic but for me it somehow captures everything that he's done over the last 60 years yeah, go, go for it mike i love the song i know mike does too <laughs> well i mean th that i think that's a beautiful opening uh, set of lines but but i i think what he does there is immediately brings you in, you know, early one morning, the sun was shining, I was laying in bed, okay, wondering if she changed it all, who is she, and if her hair was still red, and and he begins to just spin out verse after verse of, of this tale that never quite goes where you're expecting it to, and and I think what happens a lot in popular song is, if, if, if a couplet ended with, I was laying in bed, you could probably guess where it's going to go next, it's, it's not that hard, um, and, and we keep going back to, uh, to Mick Jagger's quote when he's talking about music kind of pre-Dylan. And he's like, you have to remember what garbage it was. <laughs> this is popular music and, and how yeah. how thin and, and treacly it was. And so what Dylan's doing there already is diverting your expectations just in that first verse and heading to a place where most songs probably don't go. And if you stick and with the And it's so personal. I, I, was, I yeah. saw a quote from Dylan about Blood on the Track saying, I don't know why people are so interested in this. It's such a personal story of my suffering and, you know, his breakup of his marriage. But then I thought, well, that's all very well him saying it. He shouldn't have brought the album out. And po <laughs> po poets, you know, po po poetry, I guess, in many ways is autobiography, sophisticated, complex autobiography, but it's hard not for it to be autobiographical. Is that fair, Mike? I would say that's true. And we, we also talk, I believe it's a, about a W.H. Auden quote where he's like, you know, Conversations you have with other people create rhetoric. Conversations you have with yourself create poetry, or hopefully, if, if you're being honest with yourself and you have some talent. And uh, it, I think that's what Dylan brings to bear in this song is he's just having a conversation with himself, but it becomes this universal thing that really anybody can can. And he, get even into in the song itself, he, he, you know, he, he he plays around with the narrator. You're never quite sure if it's a man or a woman, and he changes it, and he's incredibly playful. Yeah. Um, Ernest, uh, I, I think Mike said earlier uh, he referred to the one of you referred to uh, Mick Jagger saying that before Dylan, uh, music was not very good. Um, I mean, of course, it was not not universally good. He may have been referring to the Beatles. Uh, because after all, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles are often compared. Um, one of the things that I, I liked in the book is you compare two Beatles songs, uh, She Loves You and Norwegian Wood. Norwegian Wood as an example of poetic verse uh, and uh, She Loves You as, as, a, as a classic pop song. Explain the difference between those two songs and why She Loves You is not poetry. 
Well, I mean, she loves you. I, I think in many ways it's, it's fairly obvious. She loves you is, uh, we call it pop sugar. It, that doesn't mean it's a bad song. It's catchy and so on, but it's not uh, uh, poetic song verse. Norwegian Wood has a mystery to it. And a mystery lyrically that then sonically that, uh, uh, that mystery is augmented through the different types of instrumentation, uh, the use of, of uh, uh, different instruments that come in and out that are not conventionally associated uh, with rock music. But what you see in that song, as with so much poetic song verse, is that the instrumentation, the sonics, which sonic means everything from voice to performance, every oral element of the song are used to enhance the lyrics. And I think Norwegian Wood is just, it's a great example of that. Mike, uh, the, third, uh, the third chapter in the book um, brings together uh, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Doors. Um, the, 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 the title of the chapter is The Evolution of Poetic uh, sorry, the, uh, the, the, the title of the chapter is Myth-Making Personae and Poetic Song Verse. Of course, perhaps the, great, the, the, the greatest myth-maker of all is Keith Richards. That's manifested in, his, in everything he does, particularly his, his book, Life. Um, what is it about the Beatles, the Doors and the Stones that somehow capture the spirit of, uh, uh, of, of poetry and verse in rock and roll? I, I think they were, as the term we like to use these days, I think is early adapters. And, and I think they saw something happening uh, in Dylan. In particular. Isn't that a line? They saw something happening or some, something like that. Maybe, maybe I don't know. It, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I know the Beatles had, had a real interpersonal connection with Dylan, uh, who was kind of dismissive of their music. And, uh, and, and you All know, the they, music or just she loves you? Uh, well, I think where they were at the time, and uh, and and I think beginning with maybe Rubber Soul, you start to hear these Dil Dylan influences in in uh, not just the the striving for poetry, but but even um, uh, or maybe that wasn't Rubber Soul, but Hey, you've got to hide your love away. I think Paul McCartney was just saying in a in a recent New Yorker article that you, you can even hear. Lennon is imitating Dylan's voice, like, hey, you got to, you know. Um, and so they, they really realized that if they were going to go anywhere uh, creatively and artistically, uh, they, they'd have to give themselves a crash course in, uh, in, in poetry, basically, and, and how to up their game lyrically. And, and I think the Doors caught that. I think the Rolling Stones absolutely caught that. And they lived they were, it, didn't they? I mean, no one lived it better than Jim Morrison of The Doors or, or, or Keith Richard of The Rolling Stones. Well, yeah, and, and as Ernest mentioned earlier, too, we, we talk about this back and forth synergy uh, between musicians who really want to be considered uh, serious poetically and then poets who and wish that they were cool like musicians. And so there's this kind of across the aisle admiration going on. Um, um, Ernest, so far, of course, we've only talked shamefully about men, but there are 
females in your book, fortunately, and uh, some of them are as brilliantly poetic as, as anyone. I mean, uh, the one, of course, who most comes to mind, who sprinkled throughout the book is Joni Mitchell. Uh, you write about Lu Lucinda Williams and a number of other female artists do. And again, I don't want to generalize here, uh, but do women bring a particular kind of poetic sensibility? I know that Mitchell, Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan were actually quite close and uh, obviously um, uh, there were other female uh, artists also as, as part of this movement. But do you want to say something about the role, the contribution of women in all this? Well, I mean, Joni Mitchell is a, is a, a genius. She's um, an incredible writer. Well, she's up there with Dylan. If I mean, she may not be quite as prolific as him, yeah. but well, at well, her best, is, she's as good as him. Yeah, the thing with why Dylan has more of an influence than, say, Joni Mitchell is because he gets off the ground more quickly. Dylan, by the early to mid-60s, is changing the way that music is written lyrically. Uh, for Joni Mitchell, it's several years uh, after that. And you mentioned Lucinda Williams. Lucinda is the daughter of uh, a very fine poet who's no longer with us, Miller Williams, her, her, her dad, who was a friend of mine and taught at University of Arkansas for many years and who um, uh, read a poem at Bill Clinton's second inauguration. But Lucinda, who I think is as good of a songwriter as there is writing today, um, what she in the mid 60s is sitting in on her dad's uh, courses and uh, also, his graduate students are bringing over to their house albums by Dylan, by Gordon Lightfoot, uh, by The Stones, uh, by The Doors. And what she has said is that what happens at that moment is that all of a sudden everyone, all the musicians, rather than wanting to be entertainers, wanted to be artists. And I think that Lucinda Williams, in her music in her uh, yeah, she's, she has an incredible narrative she has an incredible voice as well i mean her voice is yeah. saturated with the blues much yeah. more than joni mitchell what about the role of joan Baez in all this uh, I, I know you mentioned her but did politics ernest kill the poetry in Baez? well uh, Baez at the beginning isn't writing a lot of songs what she is, is part of that folk music in being able to sing songs uh, perfectly. She has a great, great uh, uh, voice. Now, I think that what Dylan finds are the politics associated with the folk mu uh, movement uh, too confining. And uh, he doesn't want to play to others' expectations. And that's one reason why he's constantly changing. Uh, Mike, um, let's go to Mike here. Uh, we talked about Chuck Berry, um, obviously African-American musician. We've noted, you've noted that this whole tradition came out of the South, out, out of the African-American tradition. It goes without saying that the Rolling Stones, the Doors, Bob Dylan weren't black. Uh, but there were, you, you, you talk a little bit about 
uh, Marvin Gaye, who now I think uh, I think the Rolling Stones, their latest best songs of all time, uh, Gaye was uh, Gaye came out number one. Um, Jimi Hendrix, of course. What um, what do more contemporary African American, and obviously they're not even that contemporary. What do more contemporary African American artists bring, which white boys like Mick Jagger or Bob Dylan can't to this game of poetry and the blues? Do, do you mean back in the 60s or, or today? Well, both, both. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, if you take Jimi Hendrix as an example, um, he, he, was, he was a triple threat in that he was just this astonishing guitar player uh, who had really learned his craft on the Chitlin circuit in America, you know, with Little Richard and the Isley Brothers. And so his, his, his musical bona fides are impeccable. Uh, but at the same time, he can sing. Uh, and, and what he can really do is write songs. And, um, and then he also had this great uh, sonic curiosity, beginning with the guitar and that kind of bled over into the production of his albums. Um, and, and, and so, he, I, you know, just like he showed up in, in London and blew every way with blew everybody away with his guitar. I, I think you can say the same thing about his songwriting. And and again, his songwriting began kind of, you know, intriguing but not necessarily poetic. And then he he just becomes addicted to Bob Dylan. There's a great documentary that came out on him in the '80s uh, where his girlfriend from the time Fane uh, was talking about his obsession with Bob Dylan. He'd wear out the grooves on a Bob Dylan album and have to buy it again. She says something to the effect of, we almost got thrown out of our apartment on the back of Bob Dylan. Um, and so he's he's kind of an early, I hate using this word all the time, but black adapter <laughs> of Dylan. Um, you know, other, other and, and you have to understand too that that the music world was pretty stratified at the time. And so rock and roll was, was really a, a white version of, of what they thought black music was. And 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 black music was generally happening in, in the soul region. Yeah, and that was um, what's interesting actually about the show about Led Zeppelin, as, as you can tell, I'm not a big fan of them, but um, <laughs> we were reminded from, the, from this book and the conversation yesterday that Zeppelin themselves borrowed from the South as well, just like the Rolling Stones. Absolutely, absolutely. And and uh, I mean, that that's, that's what they did, but that's the stuff they loved. Um, but, you know, rock and roll in and of itself is pastiche. So the, the, the kind of conversation we're having these days about like appropriation and stuff like that, it's it's true, but but I think things were a little more loosey-goosey back then because they were stratified, if that makes sense. Um, and we can't forget, too, we're talking about, you know, if black music is soul music and white music is rock and roll. Um, Sam Cooke, for example, uh, heard "Blown in the Wind" and was like, "I'm gonna, I could do that." Yeah, I just saw <laughs> a, a film about uh, that uh, about Sam Cooke, uh, Ernest, uh, and 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 what he did as as, as a response. Ernest, we had we've done a lot of shows about Black Lives Matter and contemporary racism in America. We had the writer Maisha Cherry on the show arguing that anger is the most appropriate tool for defeating racism. I guess in terms of music, the best vehicle for anger has been hip-hop and particularly rap. How do rap and hip-hop, how are they descendants of poetic verse? Well, what I, th what I think it, uh, I, I think rap and hip-hop 
largely come out of, certainly not exclusively, but largely out of Gil Scott Heron's uh, uh, work, where he starts bringing that type of poetic sensibility, and he thinks of himself primarily as uh, uh, a poet. Uh, and I think that the rap and hip hop artists start listening to Gil Scott Heron as well as to other musicians and, uh, and think we want to elevate our game. We have something to say. One thing that we should note here is, you know, there has been in the, in the 20th century, there was great achievement in poetry, in the novel, in painting, you know, many of these artists broke the canvas and rearranged it in different ways. But to my mind, the two great art forms of the 20th century are film, which takes off and is all over, and then the blues. Think of all the different types of music that grow out of the uh, blues, from uh, uh, jazz to R&B, to uh, you know, 60s rock and roll, uh, to rap, hip hop, and uh, so on. I mean, the blues change the world, and the blues allow other artists to follow on them and change the world too. Uh, Mike, um, we had uh, the New York Times book reviewer Pamela Paul on the show. She has a new book out, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. Has the internet killed all this, the poetry uh, and music, or is it still alive today? I think it's still alive today. Um, I, I, I think, in a way, it, it is it has helped uh, that that if you if you become curious in anything, whether it's the blues or whether it's rock and roll or or, or seeing live performances from a different time or, or anything, you can find it pretty easily. As opposed to when I was younger and really took an interest in the blues and the late 70s and 80s, uh, you had to really do boots on the ground research and you, you had to find a community of like-minded people. Uh, can, can you give me some examples of, of young singer-songwriters who, who capture the spirit of, of the tradition, who you would encourage people to listen to who might not be that well-known? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's interesting now because I, I feel like the impulse of poetic song verse really has kind of entrenched itself in what we might call Americana music, which is kind of a, a blend of, of rock, folk, country, um, stuff like that. Um, you know, there's Jason Isbell is a great songwriter. Um, I, I, off the top of my head, it's hard to find a lot of people. But, but I think it's really entrenched itself, too, in what... Uh, hip hop has become, you know, a person like Kendrick Lamar, for example, uh, is 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 attacking what he's doing with a, with a, with a poetic impulse. I mean, it, it's still there. It, it, it hasn't gone away. It's again, it's just it, you have to look for for folks and their intent. Um, uh, you know, I, I have a million other favorite songwriters, uh, but who are who are a little older, not quite contemporary. But um, that's kind of where we are. Uh, Ernest, um, has the spirit of poetry migrated away from the song? Uh, I saw, for example, uh, Springsteen on Broadway, which I thought was magnificent, which best captured what he was trying to do. There's a lot of Bruce Springsteen in the book. Uh, Dylan's book, Chronicles, it, it, it rivals his, his greatest songs, uh, 
Keith Richards' book is also a magnificent achievement. Um, how how do these other forms, whether it's live shows on Broadway, uh, in, in theatrical form, or, or the book itself, how do they compete or perhaps enrich the song from these artists? As you mentioned, the, the, the Springsteen shows on Broadway uh, uh, were uh, f- fantastic. I don't think it's so much a matter of competing uh, with poetry. Poetry in itself has always had a very devoted readership, but not a, a huge readership, with the exception maybe being people like uh, yeah, uh, Robert Frost or Langston Hughes. Uh, or the the beats, but uh, we have great poets writing uh, today. Uh, we just had a reading on an organization that Mike and I are part of, the Association of Literary Scholars, Critics, and Writers, and Yusef Kumunyaka gave just an extraordinary reading, and the blues and jazz are all over uh, Yusef's poetry. So I think these the, it, it's all a world of art. And there are people who try, everyone wants to sell, everyone wants to uh, uh, be known, of course, but there's a distinction between people who are just doing whatever they can to sell their work and people who are trying to put the very best work that they can do out there and then try to sell it. Well, it's great stuff, your new book. Mike Matteson and Ernest Suarez's new book, Poetic Songverse, Blues-Based Popular Music and Poetry. It's published appropriately enough by University of Mississippi Press. It really captures the spirit of, 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 of rock and roll or a certain, uh, I guess, tradition within rock and roll. Congratulations, guys, on the book. Uh, I have to ask you suggestions on further reading in addition to your book. What should people be reading and what should they be listening to? Perhaps I, I've... I've revealed my favorite song, Tangled Up in Blue. Perhaps you might be a little autobiographical and confessional here and tell me your favorite songs and, and a book or two that you would advise our, our readers and listeners to watch, uh, to, not to watch, to read, even a movie to watch if you feel like it. Who wants to start? Mike, why don't you go first? Sure. Uh, well, uh, we, we do have a, uh, a Spotify channel that uh, Good. includes every song that we talk about in the book. Um, and so if you if you get the book, it's, you know, 15,000. How do they find the Spotify channel? They just put your name into Spotify? Uh, I think you could, yeah. Mike Madison, Ernest Suarez, Poetic Song Verse, it should pop up. And so there's about 80 or so songs there. Um, if just talking about music books, I just reread Chrissy Hines' memoir, Pretender, which I think is just brilliant. It's one of the mm. most fascinating books. She's I've good as well. Read. And you mentioned her in the book too. She's one of my all-time favorite songwriters. And and the way that she goes about just being very clear-eyed about her uh, journey through uh, through music, but also just through the world is just uh, is very refreshing. Um, I also just reread The Death of Rhythm and Blues by the great journalist and cultural critic Nelson George. It's kind of a shadow history of the black entertainment industry uh, in the 20th century and uh, and how it was able to uh, kind of become its own thing that promoted its own brand of music and its own brand of artists and uh, how when that dwindled, the, the quality of music itself seemed to dwindle. It's, it's a really brilliant book. And you're not going to get away without your favorite song, Mike. Oh, favorite song <laughs> at the moment? 
No, Ooh. of all time. Uh, of all time. Uh, I will, if you I will know you've you. only got five or 10 minutes to live, what would be the last song you would listen to? <laughs> I'll tell you. I don't know if it's it's necessarily poetic song verse, but uh, in, in terms of a lyric matched up to a melody, uh, Bring It On Home To Me by Sam Kerr. Well, at least it wasn't Stairway To Heaven. Ernest, what about <laughs> you uh, when it comes to books and your favorite song? Uh, with books, I'd even veer a little bit away right now. Mike and I have started a project where we're writing about uh, uh, Ralph Ellison and Robert Penn Warren mm. in mid-century American uh, literary and artistic culture. And I think, for instance, Ellison's Invisible Man and Robert Penn Warren's novel, All the King's Men, speak to our moment politically and so on, as well as anything that I can. Uh, By the way, you should look at the Eubanks book on Mississippi. It's, it's marvelous. And not only that, uh, it has incredible photographs. We haven't even talked about photography. Maybe that's a subject of another show. And what about your a song, Ernest? Well, I mean, the song is so uh, difficult. But what That's why I, I ask it. But what I might point to is a song that for me uh, set me off on this uh, path when I was probably 12 years old is Dylan's Desolation Row. <laughs> oh, my God. We could go on and on. We have to end this, but it's a wonderful conversation, guys. It's always so nice to talk to people so steeped in knowledge and love of a, of a genre of music, of this great American art form. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the new book, Poetic Song Verse, Blues Blaze, Popular Music and Poetry. It's essential reading for anyone who has any interest in either American song or in poetry. It's a marvelous read. It's short and it's, and it, and it's dense with stuff, illusion, reference, stories. Congratulations on the book. And I'd love to have you guys back on the show because there's so much more to talk about. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows, you might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.